You are listening to the Star Coach Podcast with Meg Rentschler, Episode 3. Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rentschler, as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello, Star Coaches. This is your host, Meg Rentschler, executive and mentor coach, speaker, and author. I want to welcome you to today's show. As professionals, it's our responsibility to keep our skill set fresh, to continue to build our coaching muscles, and remain curious about different ideas, new information, tools, and resources that are available to us that help us fine-tune our skill and help us to better meet the needs of our clients. One resource that's readily available is the plethora of reading material about coaching in all aspects, from skill building to practice building. My bookshelf can attest to the fact, as it groans under the weight of my frequent Amazon purchases, that there is a plethora of reading material about the coaching industry. Today's show features an interview with Dr. Robert Hicks, as he discusses his book, Coaching as a Leadership Style, The Art and Science of Coaching Conversations for Healthcare Professionals. Dr. Hicks is the founding director of the Organizational Behavior and Executive Coaching Program in the School of Management at the University of Texas at Dallas. Dr. Hicks has been coaching executives for many years in a variety of industries. I first met him when I was a student going through the UTD Executive Coaching Certification Program and really appreciated the way that he was able to apply evidence-based theories and models to his coaching to provide a solid foundation to his overall approach. Dr. Hicks combines his experience in coaching professionals and executives to his training as a licensed psychologist, and that's created a coaching framework that's an invaluable tool to coaches and to leaders. The four-square coaching framework is foundational to the courses that I teach at UTD, and I've also used the book as a resource for leaders in a variety of industries who want to strengthen their leadership abilities by using coaching techniques or coaching as a leadership style. Dr. Hicks does not hold back in this interview. He's going to share with you an abundance of information about his coaching experience and how he built this framework. So let's go to our interview with Dr. Robert Hicks. Dr. Hicks, welcome. Thank you for taking time to visit with us today. Well, thank you, Meg. No problem. Glad to do it. Super. What I'd like to begin with is just an understanding. How does a psychologist get led into the field of executive coaching? Well, it certainly wasn't a planned event. Like any psychologist coming out of graduate school there at USC, I thought that my goal was to develop a practice and a clinical practice and help people work through their problems and that sort of thing. But as part of the becoming a licensed psychologist, you have to do a pre-doctoral internship and a post-doctoral internship. And so I did mine in the state hospital system at uh, Pacific State Hospital and Agnew State Hospital, California. And after coming out of that experience, well, it was interesting. I found myself 
even though I was a clinical psychologist in those institutions, I found myself enjoying working more with the staff in the sense that there would be people would want team building and some of the leaders inside the hospital would want to, to get advice or to talk about their problems. And I became more interested in working with the leadership and the staff and the teams in the hospitals. It was more satisfying to me than just actually working with the patients. So when I finished my internship and I came out of and I took my licensing exams and oral exams and all that, I decided to try to move into a different direction. And so I initially began working as a management development specialist at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. And that was an interesting experience, mm-hmm. especially during that time, because it was a nuclear research laboratory in the Cold War, and it was interesting. But again, I got to work with managers and teams, and I found it really satisfying. And over time, I began developing an external practice. And I left Lawrence Livermore Labs to pursue an independent practice as a consulting psychologist to organizations. So during that time, I probably worked primarily on typical consulting psychologist issues like selection and assessment and team development and organizational change, but also the specialty around leadership development. As I began working with different organizations and top leaders, I found myself in a lot of one-on-one conversations. Well, here I am, a newly minted psychologist, Psychologist, and I'd be sitting down with a CEO of an Occidental Life or someone like that, and they would want my advice around how to handle a particular individual or what to do with their team. Well, I didn't know anything. You didn't didn't let them know you didn't know anything? No, because as a consultant, you let them know you don't know anything. That doesn't bode well for your long-term financial interests. So I only had one choice. Since I didn't know anything, I figured, well, shoot, I'm going to fall back on my clinical training, whether it was the more humanistic, client-centered training of Carl Rogers whether it was a solution focus or back then it was called brief therapy and some of the different models. And so I began just falling back on those and going into an inquiry process and asking questions based upon what I knew I could do as a clinical psychologist. And little did I know at that time that that was really, I was really coaching, but they didn't call it coaching back in the early 80s. So I found that interesting. And over time, I began thinking, gee, what am I doing here in terms of how am I constructing these conversations such that just through an inquiry process alone, people seem to be able to work through issues and solve problems. Now, there was the typical, like the Rogerian belief that the person has its answers and you're part of your responsibility just to help the person come get those answers out of him or herself. And it's very similar to what coaching is now. So over time, I began just uh, developing some different ways to do that using those evidence-based theories. And that's what I guess I began to enjoy. That's what clients would start hiring me for. And then lo and behold, a decade later, I heard it was called coaching. And at some point, you actually became the founding director of a coaching program. How did that happen? Well... I had had this practice for over 20 years in the Bay Area, and one of my clients was a Transamerica Insurance Group, and they ultimately moved out to Irving, Texas, Las Colinas, actually. And while I was here, I began meeting people at the University of Texas at Dallas. And 
I made, actually it was TIG that first brought me out as maybe an offer to come out and handle all their professional and, and organizational development. So I came out and wanted to kind of get away from California in a sense. I liked the opportunities that were here. And once I got here, unfortunately, 9-11 occurred. And TIG being property and casualty insurance, the parent company had a big interest in the World Trade Towers. And so they came to us after about a year and said, no, we don't. We love you guys, but we got to break up TIG, and so we don't need an executive team. So here I am in Texas after about a year. But UT Dallas and I had been talking about a number of things. They knew about me. They knew about my executive coaching. So they asked me to come in and, and coach all of their executive MBA students. And I said, no, I said, I, I said, I'll tell you what I will do, though. I will set up a program, manage that program, and bring in coaches and help manage that to coach their MBA students. And so that developed my relationship here. And it wasn't long after I was here and I began to interact with other coaches in the area and begin to look at coaches and what they brought that I said, I think that if coaching is ever going to go from vocation to a profession, such as counseling or psychology, it's going to have to have a university base and it's going to have to go through, just like those professions did, the developmental process that can only occur in academic settings. So I went to the appropriate internal bodies and said, hey, I want to start this graduate certificate in executive professional coaching. I wanted to, people to receive graduate credit for it. And so You actually took, have you, a funny story. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you have no. a funny story about that. When you went and, and presented it, you got an interesting response. To show you yeah, what they thought about it. And I think, first of all, UT Dallas now is probably one of the leading, if not the leading university in this, I think, executive coaching in the country. But when I first presented it to the different committees, the first committee I presented it to, I said, okay, I want to bring in this coaching program. And one of the professors on the committee said, well, shouldn't that be in the athletic department? <laughs> That's what they thought coaching was about. And I said, no, I mean, we're talking individualized leadership development in this case. And so I had to kind of educate the institution about it as we went through it. So it was kind of an interesting process. But once we got it started and I began seeing coaches or potential coaches and what they brought, I became even more convinced that the program curriculum should be evidence-based and we should present the methods and the models from established methods for helping individuals change. And that began to develop the basis for our curriculum along with wanting to, deciding to say, we want to be aligned with an accrediting organization and it turned out to be the International Coach Federation. And when we first started, there were other organizations that were competing with the ICF for, I guess you would say, dominance. Mm -hmm. But we felt that they brought a good framework. We liked their competencies, and we felt that that could be integrated into our approach. And so we established that relationship, became accredited, and began to move forward. And in the midst of, of your moving forward, I think the program underwent many different changes, and I know that when I went through the program several years ago, it was a different curriculum to some extent than it is now. What has that metamorphosis been like for you? Well, when we first started, we wanted to have coaches with experience teaching. We wanted to have coaches that came out of the ICF could teach the competencies. But at the same time, we wanted to have people that had some kind of an academic background. And when we first started, people would come in and basically teach what they knew, what their specialty was. 
But as the curriculum developed, we wanted people to come in and teach from a standpoint of a scientific, academic standpoint while still integrating the ICF competencies. So over time, we put more emphasis on, I guess you would say, the academic credentials along with coaching mastery and along with ICF certification to fill out our curriculum. It was an interesting process because a student would start and they would go through what we call a learning module, set of sessions, and they would learn about appreciative inquiry. Then they would go through another set. They'd learn about positive psychology. Then they'd go through another set and they'd learn about the competencies. And then they'd go through another set and they'd learn around solution-focused coaching. And the feedback that we started getting was that this was all good information, but it was also confusing because each approach looked different or sounded different. And there wasn't enough, I guess you would say, integration of what was similar about all the approaches. How could all these different approaches to coaching be organized in such a way that there was a thread that they or a backbone to which they could be attached? Mm-hmm. So now we're getting a whole new set of skills each time they actually integrate together. Exactly. Mm-hmm both from a models and method standpoint and the ICF competency standpoint. Well, there is a concept out there called the reflective practitioner. And the reflective practitioner is a concept or a model. It's um, really about how when you're counseling or when you're coaching or when you're doing clinical work, that the reflective practitioner thinks about what they were doing and continually analyzes what they're doing and figures out a way to conceptualize it and think about it in a way that will continue to help them improve their effectiveness. Well, as I've been coaching all these years, and I was using all these different approaches, a lot of the integrating the, whether it was the cognitive behavioral approach or whether it was the solution-focused approach or whether it was aspects of motivational interviewing or whether it was Rogerian approach and whether there were aspects of NLP, linguistic programming, I got to the point where I could sit down in a conversation, a coaching conversation, and I intuitively knew where we were in the conversation. I knew what my choices were in terms of helping the person get to where they want to go, to facilitating that person's thinking. And it got to be an intuitive process, but there was never a situation that I didn't know what to do because I kind of had an internal map to it. Once I had this map, it helped make my coaching much more effective, but the map was still intuitive and was not explicit. And as I got into, the more I tried to think about when people say, well, how do you do that? Sometimes when you've done something a long time, I don't care whether it's playing a musical instrument or anything else, a person can get very fluid at it. To other people, it almost looks magical. Well, it's not magic. There's a structure underlying it. So I began the process of reflecting and trying to figure out how can I make more explicit this integration of all these different approaches and then help the students that were going through my program integrate that into their coaching to be more effective? And I know that that's going to kind of lead us into this fabulous book that you wrote. But one thing that kind of popped in my head and I was thinking that maybe the listeners might be thinking it is how have you kind of stayed the coaching line versus the therapy line with the approaches that you named several therapeutic approaches, and I think that it would be helpful to kind of talk about how you have used those evidence-based models but really sort of tweaked them for coaching versus 
doing therapy with these leaders? Well, there's a couple different answers to that. I think that the main difference, I want to be careful about this because there is no question that there are clear boundaries between coaching and therapy. But I also believe that there is a history of different approaches that have been proven to help individual work through issues and problems and change that we can't ignore. Cognitive behavioral approach being one as an example that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think that the main difference for me in knowing where the line and boundary is, not so much the process, or in other words, the approach that I'm using, as long as I'm using a solid approach to help people move to where they want to go, but it's content. It's the type of issues that people are dealing with. So when I'm coaching executives, or if or even if it was life coaching and helping a person think about what they want to do with their life, those aren't clinical issues. But if a person is feeling depressed or is overcome with anxiety or has certain fears that are dominating their life, those start to creep in. Those are clinical issues. And I can use the same approach. I can use a solution-focused approach in dealing with those clinical issues. Or I can use a solution-focused approach in dealing with a person's life goals or an executive's leadership goals or whatever. So for me, it's not so much the approach itself as it is making sure that you have a clear idea of the boundary between content that is clinically driven and content that is more coaching-driven. And I think that is a mistake that a lot of coaches make. They think that just because an approach has been developed for a clinical setting, for example, motivational interviewing being Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. which was developed for drug addicts and for alcoholics to help them move forward and change, well, the same approach, a lot of the ideas of motivational interviewing, which I've ultimately integrated into the Foursquare Coaching Framework that we'll talk about, is just as useful to develop motivation for people in pursuing personal or professional goals that they have. I couldn't agree more since I have the honor of teaching the motivational interviewing and seeing how clients can respond to that. I think the other question then that we hear that I'd like to throw to you is, so do I have to be a psychologist or a therapist to be able to become a coach? Absolutely not. I mean, I think that you have to have a good understanding of how to manage the coaching conversation. And that's one of the reasons that I put the framework together because the framework incorporates a lot of these uh, different evidence-based models, but in a transparent way. In other words, you don't have to be an expert in them, but if you understand the framework and follow the framework, you will, by default, be using those aspects of change to help individual change that are most useful and appropriate for the coaching. Well, and I will say that I think that book is makes it very user-friendly. It does break it down in such a way that you don't have to have an advanced degree in psychology to be able to use the history and the evidence-based models that have been there building the foundation for those of us who, because coaching is definitely a helping conversation, those of us who are working with people who'd like to get to a different place. Yeah, I'll say something else about the book. I'll talk a little bit about maybe how I came to that. Mm -hmm. But it's important for people to realize, yeah, the publisher wanted me to focus on the industry of healthcare because it's prominent in our social, political society at this point in time. And there's a lot of opportunities there. But the publisher wanted two things, to make it healthcare-centric, 
but even though those are healthcare examples, they could easily be examples in another industry. So anyone that's reading it, I would not get too tied up into the examples just because they are maybe a clinical setting, but they could have been an office setting in some other A manufacturing way. setting. I mean, yeah. really just kind of change the characters for whatever works for what you're working with. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing that was decided for this particular book, it was kind of a cross between a book for practitioners and also for leaders because leaders do coaching. Mm-hmm. And I originally wanted to write a book just for practitioners. So this has a lot of practitioner elements to it, but it also has elements for people that are in leadership and managerial positions that want to use aspects of this for their own coaching in those positions. I hope at some point be able to expand the just practitioner portion and write a separate but related book just for practitioners. But there's enough stuff in here that will be helpful for any practitioner, I believe. Well, and I would have to agree with you. I've used this both with teaching the concept and teaching the framework to coaches, as well as giving this book to leaders that I've worked with in different industries, really with that same disclaimer. It doesn't matter that you're not in the healthcare profession because this book will help you to be a better leader. Exactly. I have this map in my head. I'm reflecting on how can I make it more explicit for people who to be able to use it as a a tool, as a framework to help their coaching conversations be more productive. Okay. Let me go back a little bit and mention something. I mean, you've heard the phrase that coaching conversation is a client-driven. I'm going to say something a little controversial here. It might seem out of place at first, but hear me out. I think it's a myth that the coaching conversation is client-driven. Let me explain what I mean. You have to talk loudly over the gas. Yeah, I know that. Sometimes, maybe in a workshop or seminar, I'll ask how many coaches here think that coaching is a client-driven process, and everyone will raise their hand, and I'll say, I think that's a myth. But that's primarily to get their attention. Then I have to go back and say, well, actually, you're not totally wrong. I think it's client-driven in the sense that it's the client's agenda. It's the client's subject matter. But it's not totally client-driven from a process standpoint. In other words, let me explain what I mean. Think about it. Why do people seek coaching? Well, they seek coaching because they want to change in some way. There is some change. Okay, that change could be a change in their present circumstances relative to some problem or situation or some goal that they have. They want to get from here to there. They may want to change some aspect of their behavior, personally or professionally, to be more effective. They may want to change their capabilities for some kind of developmental purpose, or they may want to change a change in their career aspiration. But the key is, is there is a change. I mean, people don't go to coaching just to have everything to be the way it is now. There is some difference. There is some change that is a result of the coaching process that is client-driven in terms of what they want. But creating change is a heuristic process. All of those who have coached know that It's not just a matter of a formula that you can just say, okay, it's just A, B, C, D, and then we get to E. It's a little bit of a messy process. I sometimes think that getting a client from where they are now to where they want to be, it's kind of like here you are at the top of a hill and you're kind of looking out and you see this river and you say, okay, there you are with the client. The client says, I want to go to that river, and you're the guide. You're going to help them get there. But in between this hill you're standing on where you see this river and the client states that they want to get to that river, there's this jungle. And once you get down into the jungle, it's a messy process. Sometimes you go in one direction and you find out that the bridge that was supposed to be there has been washed out. 
Sometimes it's a rainy season and all of a sudden you can't make as much process. So creating change is a heuristic process and therefore coaches need to be experts in that process, in the process of the heuristic process of change. So if you can't manage the process, and this is another controversial statement, I believe if you can't manage the process, you can't coach. No. Really, sort of coach's responsibility to hold that structure, to hold, to, to be the guide. Yeah, to be, it's like being a safari guide. I mean, if you're out in the jungle and you're a safari guide, those people that you're on the safari, they expect you to know where you are in the jungle. Mm-hmm. They expect to know what happens if they go in one direction and the bridge is washed out. They expect you to figure out how to get to another direction to help them get to where they want to go. And it's important to have certain competencies as a safari guide. You have to be able to probably start a fire without matches if needed. You have to be able to know how to read a compass or look at the sky and know where you're going. You have to know what makes a good campsite and what doesn't. So there are certain competencies. They tell you what you have to be able to do, but sometimes they don't tell you exactly when to do it or even how within the context of what you're trying to do. And the same thing applies in coaching, you have to have certain competencies, but at the same time, you have to have a map so that you know when and how those competencies can be best used. Okay, So you have to understand the terrain so to use those competencies. And what I found is that the framework that I began putting together was really like this process map. It helped me, once as a reflective practitioner, I was able to make my process explicit so that I knew based on what was client saying, and where we were in that jungle, in that conversation, in that coaching conversation, I knew where we were, and I knew exactly what my options were to help or to move the conversation in such a way to help the client get what they wanted, he or she wanted. And so I think that good coaches, come to coaches, have to know where they are. If you don't know where you are in the conversation at any point in time, and what your options are, then you're limited as a coach. And what do you mean when you say know where you are in the conversation? Well, if a person is talking about something, how do you know, for example? I mean, take the example, a person sit down and what would you like to talk about today? And the person says, well, I'd like to talk about my leader, my manager that I'm working for. Okay. So what would you like to talk about relative to the manager? Well, I don't think that I get the respect that I deserve. I'd like to figure out a way to get more respect so that it will help my professional career. Well, there's a choice point at this point right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, That choice point is to be, develop a clearer picture of the situation and delve into the present situation Okay, mm-hmm. or to move the conversation into the future to begin developing what we call well-formed outcomes, outcomes that can actually be moved towards relative to some, with some set of action. Or, at the same time, one can also explore the current motivation in terms of how confident the person feels in being able to do some of the things, achieve what they want to achieve. Do they have the confidence? Do they have the belief that this is possible? There's a lot of different choices in that one moment. Mm -hmm. And so knowing which choice to make what your choices are. And the point is, is that it doesn't mean you're always right, but you're making a conscious choice so that once you move forward, let's suppose you're in the jungle and you say, okay, you come to this spot and you're not sure there's three paths. At least you know there's three paths and you make your best judgment, professional judgment, which path 
maybe it, the bridge did wash out, but then you know you back up and go a different path. The point is you're conscious about the process you're using. And most of the time, because you're using professional, good professional judgment, you're going to choose the right path. You're going to realize when mistakes are made. So, for example, in that situation, let's suppose you chose to get more in-depth understanding of the problem. Well, what caused you to believe that you're not getting the respect that you want? And the person begins to tell you, well, that can be a slippery slope if you go too far. Because now you're getting into the causes. You're getting into the history of the problem, which is okay up to a certain point. But beyond a certain point, then you slip into what is typically called problem talk. And you talk about the history and how unfair the person's been treated and why the person didn't take more assertive action earlier. And then, and that doesn't lead you anywhere except through a spinning cycle around the problem and focusing on the problem instead of the solution-focused approach would have you is focusing on the solution. But you've got to know when that boundary is. When do you cross the boundary between, say, an exploration of the present situation so you have a platform for moving forward versus getting stuck in the history and the problem talk? And in order to be empathetic, the person just goes on and on and on about the problems. And the next thing, they're a victim. And unwittingly, the coach is the uh, enabler or rescuer by just agreeing with them and letting them spin about that instead of moving them forward in some way. And kind of staying in the same place. Exactly. So there are a lot of choices, and there's a person has to be able to know where they are in the conversation, and that's what I really wanted to do in developing the Foursquare Coaching Framework. And notice that even though I'll slip sometimes, it's really, I call it a framework, not a model. Mm-hmm. It's a framework that encompasses, in a transparent way, encompasses a lot of different models that make it up and evidence-based approaches that make it up, but it's a framework that over time through the reflective process, I found myself being able to use and not getting lost. So how could you describe this framework as easily as possible for people who are listening to kind of understand how they come up with their paths and their choices? I liked when you said it's not necessarily that there is a key, this is the best, but it gives options. How does a coach know what the options are? Okay. Well, all right, so as I began to think about organizing my experiences and what I was doing in a coherent way so that it could be, I could make it explicit and teach others how to do it, all right, the first set of concepts is based upon the Socratic method. I mean, the actual first, when you think about who was the first coach, historically, from a famous standpoint, it was probably Socrates. Because Socrates used the famous method of self-discovery in his teaching. Mm -hmm. And so instead of giving him answers, when people would ask a question, he would ask them. When people would want an answer, he would ask them questions. It's an inquiry-based learning process. So he would ask questions that forced the person to think through the issue themselves and come to some conclusions. And the Socratic method, that's what we do as coaches. I mean, the -hmm. the coaching is all about inquiry, making the appropriate inquiries. And self-discovery. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. In pursuit. Coaching is making inquiries in the pursuit of self-discovery, whether on the part of the person, whether Mm -hmm. that self-discovery is about where they want to go or how they're going to get there or what assets do they bring to the table that will help them get to where they want to go and you know, all of that. So there's two processes to the Socratic method, and that is to support and challenge. I mean, support means to encourage and strengthen and validate, reinforce, and to clarify. And challenge means to confront 
to question, to test, and to dare. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes I think about it. The challenge you're trying to do is produce productive discomfort. And so these two processes, support and challenge, have to work together in a balanced way. If you just do nothing but support, which means courage, and validate, mm-hmm. and reinforce, that's all well and good, but there's no movement. So kind of fall in a place of being an enabler or a rescuer if all oh, you're doing is supporting. No question about it, because people will, a lot of times, client will want you to just enable them to be victims in some cases. In order to get out of that so that people can create their own movement, coach has to be able to challenge the other person. And Now, if you challenge without support, then it can become confrontive. And you're a bully. Yeah, exactly. But if you support without challenge, people feel good, but there'll be no movement, no learning. So challenge without support compels change, but creates a combative environment that can lead to kind of intellectual spine and defensiveness. So the idea, the first idea in the framework is, as I started thinking about it, what do I do as a coach? What have I been doing for the past? Gee, when you said three decades, what Sorry. can I tell you? I would prefer to, I'd like to let everyone know I've started when I was 12. Well, and that is important. And yeah. since nobody can see you, yeah, that is important to clarify. Self-esteem. Anyway, so that's when I thought about what do I do then? I support and I challenge, okay? So that's essentially the process. But what do you support and challenge? Well, you support and challenge the content of coaching. And when I talk about content, there's only two types of content, Okay. And that is something that William Glasser pointed out. He says, look, there are certain components to what he called total behavior, and that was there's actions or doing or active behaviors, and there's thinking. In fact, he said there's actually three, thinking and doing. He says if you want to change behavior, then you have to change actions or doing, and you want to and change the thinking component. And so it really comes down to thought and action. You're really helping people change either their thinking or their actions in order to get where they want to go. So if if you put those two, the idea of thought and action as being the content of coaching and the challenge and and support as being the process of coaching, then you can imagine this two-by-two framework. And on one hand, on the upper left, let's suppose you've got support going across and down you've got thought. So you've got support for thought and then down below that you have challenge for thought. And then the upper right, you have support for action if action is the right-hand side, and you've got challenge for action down below. So these four quadrants or phases or stages or points in the coaching conversation is a nice way to think about where you might be as a map. And I use this sometimes. It's almost kind of like Disneyland. You have a map of Disneyland, and you see Tomorrowland, and you see Adventureland, and you, and you see Fantasyland. See these different lands. If you're going to get around Disneyland, you kind of have to know which land you're in and, and which path you're going to take. Now, am I going to go and to And what future? happens in those yeah. lands, yeah. Yeah, what goes on. So each of these little lands or stages then has certain objectives and requires the use of specific methods and practices. And those specific methods and practices stem from evidence-based models that are out there that we know have techniques that work. And Each of these points, each of these four areas, these four stages, you can be in it for 30 seconds or you might be in it for 30 minutes, depending on how the conversation goes. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing magical about where you start, although there's some obvious places to start. But nevertheless, you could be at any point in the conversation and move to these different quadrants throughout the conversation. So once you understand where you are, what you're talking about, 
And a lot of times, what they're saying tells you what land you may be in. Once you know that when you hear something from a client, that opens up a door to a particular area, then you can naturally and in a very fluid and natural way move the client in that direction. Let me give you an example. Please do. Before the example, let me give you a simplified understanding, and I'm going to oversimplify in terms of what the purpose is for each of these quadrants. Okay, so again, and you've got in the upper left, imagine in your mind this two by two, and imagine up at the left quadrant you've got support for thought, in the lower left you've got challenge for thought, in the upper right you've got support for action, in the lower right you've got challenge for action. Well, let's suppose a person in the upper left is support for thought. Very simply put, the purpose of what you're trying to do in support for thought, as it says, provide support for thinking going forward. Well, how do you do that? You have to develop rapport. So anything that you do to develop rapport with the person, to let them know you're paying attention, to let them know you're listening to them, whether that's using reflective listening, such as the Rogerian approach mm-hmm. would do, you're developing an atmosphere or you're supporting a thinking or conversational environment. The other thing you're trying to do in support for thought is understand their present situation or clarify their present situation. And sometimes you clarify their present situation not so much that you need to understand it so much as sometimes the clients are so wrapped up in their narrative that they need to clarify their own thinking. Mm -hmm. For example, the client that says, I want more respect, what causes them to believe that they don't have, they're not getting the respect to this point. And that's kind of clarifying how do they get to their present situation? What is their present situation like? Now, I'll go in a certain sequence. You don't have to go in the sequence. But once you understand the present situation and you create an environment for talking about where they are and where they want to go, then challenging their thinking in terms of what they want going forward or more specifically, what do they want to be different? If a person says, I'm going to talk about my boss and the fact that I'm not being respected, well, implied in that is that the present state is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Or whether the person says, I feel stuck in my career, implied in that statement is that that's not an acceptable place for them. And they want something to be different. Well, what do they want to be different? And that's really the purpose, challenging them to think about what they want to be different. Going forward is really the purpose of challenge for thought. And sometimes people are very clear about what they don't want, but they're not very clear about what they do want. Sometimes people are very fluid in talking about what they don't want, but they haven't thought so much about right. And they're not as fluid about talking about what they do want. So when you get a person talking about what they want to be different going forward, now you're challenging their thinking and moving forward. Excellent. Now, obviously, knowing what you want to be different in a way that's very clear, and again, in the book, there's very specific methods and practices. Developing a well-formed outcome has certain components, and you want to make sure all those components are, in fact, a part of that description about what they want. And I'm not going to go to that technical level here, but it's all spelled out. But once you a person gets a good understanding or a good idea of what they want to be different going forward, well, that's all well and good, but there's no movement with that. The only way you get movement is to take action towards what you want. So then clarifying, challenging people to take action, to identify how are they going to go about taking steps and what could those steps be to get what they want and when are they going to start doing it is part of the challenge for action. Now, there's all kinds of components in it. Right. If we had 24 hours, we'd be able to go through them all, but it is very well outlined in the book. Exactly. And then finally, it's all well and good to 
have an idea of how you're going to take steps to move forward, but it's also important to have the commitment and the willingness to take those steps. In other words, you have to have support for that action, and that support for action means that you have to have the motivation to back it up. And the support for action quadrant is about helping test for and build a person's motivation to take the actions to get what they want so that they have a better future than their present situation. And a better success rate and ultimately a better successful coaching experience, which coaches want to think about because that's how you keep a sustainable practice. You want to help your clients also be successful. Exactly. So if you can keep those simple ideas in mind, then very quickly you can see how if you understand this, if you have this in your head, if you understand the map, okay, and you can use a lot of different techniques. I mean, appreciative inquiry is really built around developing a person's strengths, and that's all about developing confidence, which is all about building motivation, support for action. Mm-hmm. But whether so it all intertwines. Exactly. So let's suppose a person, again, and that there you are, what would you like to talk about today? And they say, I'd like to talk about, I'd like to get build more respect for my boss so I have a better future, I have some options. And then they say, but I'm not sure that that can happen. Well, right now, their support for at that point, you have a choice. You can just continue on what causes them to have that belief, which stays in their present situation and, and clarifies more about their present situation. You can say, well, put that aside for a second. Whether or not that could happen or not, let me help them clarify what they want to be different. So I can move them then towards challenge for thought or, again, developing a picture of what they want going forward and then can go back and talk about the viability of that. Or I can move at that point right into support for action and test for their motivation. What is it that may cause them to be saying that they don't think that it's viable? Is it because they don't have any confidence in their ability? Do they believe that it's outside their control? How can that be tested and how can that be changed where they have more, see it more of as a viable goal and it's doable and that they have more self-confidence in doing it? So right there you've got three different paths to go. Mm -hmm. And over time, any path will be good because whether or not, let's suppose you move it and say and develop ask a question, say, well, you say you're not sure that's going to be possible. Well, tell me something. Tell me what is it about you as a person? What are the strengths that you bring that increase the probability, the idea that it might be possible, even in some small way? And now you've moved the conversation in support for action, trying to build their self-confidence or build their sense of control over what they want. And then later on, Once you've done that, you can move into Challenge for Thought and you can say, well, okay, so there are some strengths that you bring can make a change happen. Let's talk about what does that change look like? What do you want to be different? If you had the respect of your boss, how would you know? So it's not a matter of whether you're not going to ignore one forever. It's just where you're going to start and then eventually you're going to get to the other ones. Even if you started out in that present situation and say, well, I would like more respect from my boss, but I'm not sure that's possible. You could move right into say, well, what kind of respect do you want? In what way do you want respect? You could talk about what that future might look like. And then eventually you're going to have to test how confident are they in their ability to take action in order to get what they want. So the key is whichever way you choose, you know where you are. 
Right. And I think the key I want to reiterate, because I hear from the coaches that I work with as I teach these concepts, well, how do I know which is the right way to go? And I want to just emphasize that what you're saying and what we want them is to go with their gut. There's not a wrong answer. It's just important to go back and touch on each part of the conversation. So if you choose to go to support for action, then you'll just want to be certain that they're clear about what they want to be different going forward, that they move into challenge for thought, or that you move into their first steps into challenge for action. That's exactly right. If I were to write another book for the practitioner, I would insert a concept. You've heard me talk about the reflective practitioner, but I would also insert a concept called the informed practitioner. And so you're going to use, as an informed practitioner, you're going to use your best professional judgment as to where you want to go at that point in time. And over the more experience you have, the more that's going to probably be the correct choice. But it doesn't really matter, ultimately. The point is, as long as you know where you are and you're consciously making the choices to go into a particular area, visit a particular land, a Disneyland, you know you're going to visit the other ones anyway. So it's all mostly just a matter of sequencing because ultimately you have to get to all, if you're going to see Disneyland, you have to get to all, say, four lands. Let's just use that. And in this case, if you're going to help a person, you're going to have to move through all four quadrants. It's just a matter of how you're going to sequence it. And the key thing is knowing sort of the purpose of each quadrant so that if you're familiar enough with the purpose and you think, okay, I understand where they are right now, I understand what they want to be different going forward, Maybe I even have the very first steps that they want to do. Gosh, what am I missing? What am I missing? Oh, how motivated are they? Let's build some motivation around this so we build success. Well, yeah, you have to know the purpose of each quadrant, and then you have to know the techniques that are especially important to that quadrant. So you might know the support for action, but you also know that particular techniques is around reinforcing and eliciting change talk. And you have that as a technique, an ability to do, and that takes place in support for action. Some techniques, like reflection, is useful in a lot of different places, but they're used differently. The point is, is that you understand the purpose of where, what you're trying to do, and you understand what techniques and skills will help you at that point, or put it another way, competencies that you might use to move towards that and complete the purpose. Exactly, which you have done a wonderful job outlining in your book, giving not only the purpose, but the methods, the competencies to get there. It's a really dynamic, fascinating framework that I can speak from experience both in using the fourth square framework within my coaching and having the honor and the privilege of of teaching about 100 new coaches a year the framework that it is an incredibly useful resource for coaches. And I actually had a graduate just say to me, oh my goodness, the four square framework, when you really learn it and know it, I'm never lost in a coaching conversation because I always know where I still need to touch. And that was really exciting to hear her say. Well, that's nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Ultimately, when you think about it, I mean, it's fairly simple. It also has, I think, everything that is needed to really provide the practitioner with that feeling of confidence that they're not going to be lost. Exactly. So I want to thank you for taking your time to share this framework that you've developed with us, for taking your personal experiences and letting us know your journey to get you into the place that you're in right now. And 
I would like for you to one more time please give the title of your book. Well, this book is Coaching as a Leadership Style. Again, The Art and Science of Coaching Conversations. I would leave it at that, except it is oriented towards healthcare. So it says The Art and Science of Coaching Conversations for Healthcare Professionals. Again, it's really for anybody, and I think that practitioners will. I've tried to illustrate in some practical ways everything that we're talking about, so I think people will find it a practical approach. And I couldn't agree more. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us today and hope that you have a fabulous day. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Goodbye. As promised, that show was packed with information. Once again, I thank Dr. Hicks for spending time with us today. And I challenge each of you to continue to be lifelong learners and read an article or a book or a journal every month to expand your coaching awareness, to build those coaching muscles, to remain curious about what's out there. If you would like more information about Dr. Hicks, the show, or would like to find the link to his book, go to starcoachshow.com. Actually, also in the free resources PDF download on that page, there is information for the Library of Professional Coaching, which is a resource that fits right in with what we've been talking about today, and you might choose to explore it. So this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best today and always. And until the next time, here's to your coaching success.